0: Good morning. So thankful to see each and every one of you here today. We're thankful that we have some visitors. We're glad you're with us today. Today we're going to talk about social drinking. I know it's something that comes to mind a lot, especially this time of year. There is a trend that's kind of rising in our country and around the world uh, as well, where people are participating in something they call Dry January which is where they're going to see, uh, they're curious maybe about the benefits of living a lifestyle without alcohol. And so for 31 days, for a month, they'll set that aside. And, uh, you know, that, that is a good thing, certainly. Of course, uh, we're calling for total abstinence year-round, 365 days a year. But these dry January challenge, it encourages people uh, to uh, at least put it aside for a month. You know, in 2021, uh, about 15% of U.S. adults that were polled claimed that they participated in dry January. In 2022, 19% participated. And it's expected that this year, 22% of U.S. adults will participate in this. And so it is a a rising trend. It's a popular thing. You know, I did a, a Google search on dry January recently. And uh, some of the headlines that came up were interesting. I didn't take the time to read all the articles, but uh, one says, Why not drinking is the hottest thing in drinking? Uh, This has become so popular that uh, the alcoholic beverage companies are starting to produce non-alcoholic versions of their their drinks. Some have been around for a long time, but others are getting involved in that because they're losing money in dry January. And so they're trying to... Replace that with something else. Uh, another one says, how a dry January could help your health. Uh, here's one from England. Uh, one in seven Brits planned to take part in dry January 2023. And then uh, one that says, dry January. Wine-loving French learning to embrace non-alcoholic concoctions. And then finally, I saw one that says, Sober Curious Movement picks up speed in 2023. And so these trends, really, they're good, but they don't go far enough. God's Word com- uh, commands complete abstinence from uh, social drinking. And so we're going to begin today by just kind of looking at some of the terms. And, and I, we're going to go over these kind of very briefly. Because really what I want to get into is some arguments that people make to try to support social drinking. And I want to get to those. But let's look at the terms. Of course, the the word wine uh, in the Old Testament is the the Hebrew word yayin. And in the New Testament is the Greek word oinos. Uh, In both Greek and Hebrew, these terms are uh, generic. It can refer to either fermented or unfermented juice of the grape. And the term is sometimes used, uh, even in the Old Testament, as use of the juice that's still in the fruits. You know the context will tell you which kind is meant, so that's important that we understand that we we have similar concept. Uh, cider, especially get down in the south, cider is a popular beverage. Uh, cider can be alcoholic cider or non-alcoholic cider. They're both called cider. Sometimes one is referred to as hard cider, and the other one is just referred to as cider. But those are generic. Cider is a generic term. just depends upon the context in which it's used. The same here. Another common word that we'll find uh, translated in the the Bible is strong drink. You know, in the Old Testament, the Hebrew word there refers to a strong drink, an intoxicating drink, fermented or intoxicating liquor. And so, basically, it is a, a alcoholic beverage that is not wine. And the same really is true of the word in the New Testament translated strong drink. It's something, it's not wine, but it's something else that is alcoholic, something else that is fermented. And so, things like beer or distilled spirits would probably fall under this category. Uh, that, is all, that word, of course, is always referred to as something that is alcoholic. Other important words, terms that we need to understand is the term of drunkenness or drunken. Drunk or drunken. Uh, This comes from the Greek word methuo. And this signifies to be drunk with wine. It's used of being intoxicated. You know, we find it in Matthew chapter 24 and verse 49. It says, and shall begin to smite his fellow servants and to eat and to drink with the drunken. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 15 Peter in defense of uh, what's going on there on the day of Pentecost He says, for these are not drunken as ye suppose Seeing it is but the third hour of the day And then Paul in 1 Thessalonians 5 and 7 Says, for they that sleep, sleep in the night And they that be drunken are drunken in the night Uh, So this word, it means to be drunk It means to be intoxicated Uh, And I don't know of any Christian that says That it's okay to be drunk Okay to be intoxicated But uh, the the last word there In 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 7 uh, Is a derivative of the word methuo Uh, The word here is methusko And this is important that we understand this Uh, The dictionary definition of this word Methusko Means to make drunk or to grow drunk. It is an inceptive verb marking the process or the state expressed in Methuo to become intoxicated. And so uh, the process of becoming intoxication or becoming intoxicated is uh, Paul equates that to being drunk already. And so once you have begun the process of becoming drunk, you are already There, you're already drunk as far as the Bible is concerned. Uh, And so drunkenness. And then uh, another term we need to understand is the word sober. You know, we find that in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, where it says, be sober. And now this is also in the imperative mood, by the way. Imperative mood implies that this is a command. We are commanded to be sober. Be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about seeking whom he may devour. Now the word translated be sober is the Greek word is nepho, which means to be sober, to be calm and collected in spirit, to be temperate, dispassionate, circumspect. And then from Vine's dictionary it says to be free from the influence of intoxicants. And so we are to be sober, we are commanded to be free from the influence of intoxicants. Uh, To be sober, it also just means to be in your right mind. Not necessarily free from alcoholic influence, but maybe drug influence or or the influence of, of improper thinking. There's a lot of things involved in being sober, but one cannot be sober if their mind is altered chemically one way or another. In 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 2. Says a uh, talking here about elders or bishops. A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, vigilant, sober, of good behavior, given hospitality, apt to teach. Here, the word sober, the Greek word here is sophron, which the means to be of a sound mind, to be sane in one's senses, curbing one's desires and impulses, self controlled, and temperate. And so to be sober, is to be in one's right mind, to be free from things that would cloud our judgment and prevent uh, us from thinking clearly. You know, one cannot be said to be sober when he is under even the slightest influence of alcohol. And we'll get more on that in in a moment. But uh, notice 1 Peter 1, verse 13. He says, therefore, or wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind... And I love that term, gird up the loins of your mind. You know, it refers to those that wore those long uh, flowing robes. If you're about to do some heavy work, if you're going out to work in the field or you're going into battle, you know, you'd hike those skirts up, you'd tie a belt around it to, to get it up there and you're ready for hard action. He says, gird up the loins of your mind. Get your mind ready for spiritual warfare. And he says, Be sober. Just like he said in 1 Peter 5, 8, because we have an enemy who is out to get us and we've got to be prepared and we've got to be ready to face him. We've got to be in our right mind. 1 Peter 5, 8, uh, be sober, be vigilant. Your adversary, the devil, as a roaring lion walketh about, seeking whom he may devour. Then also notice 1 Thessalonians. We read verse 7, but notice, uh, we'll go back to verse 6. He says, There let us, not sleep as do others but let us watch and be sober for they that sleep sleep in the night and they that be drunken are drunken in the night but let us who are of the day be sober putting on the breastplate of faith and love and for a helmet the hope of salvation now there's a lot more that we could get into on this and and if you're interested in in, in more of this and and, and doing some study on your own, I recommend a book by W.D. Jeffcoat called The Bible and Social Drinking. Uh, it goes into great detail on a lot more than we have time to do here today. But uh, I, I wanted just to set down here is what the Bible says about drinking, about being sober, defining the terms, uh, so that we can have a general idea of where we're going from. But I want to really focus on these arguments that people make, because we hear them all the time, these justifications. You know, it, it's amazing to me that, that uh, you know, I, I just wonder why people can't just go to the Bible to ascertain God uh, what God's Word says on anything and then change their thinking and their lives accordingly. That's what we're called upon to do. That's what the Bible is uh, provides for us. But so many people, they will will simply try to to find some kind of justification for what they want to do in God's Word. You know, you can twist God's Word to say just about anything you want it to say. You know, there are those who do this, and they produce many excuses and justifications for social drinking. So let's begin with the, the most common one that you hear. is Well, the Bible doesn't say you can't drink, it just says you can't get drunk. And so they say a person can drink with God's approval as long as they don't get drunk. Again, I don't know any Christian who claims that it's okay for people to go out and get hammered and get drunk and things like that. They say, well, you know, as long as you don't get drunk, it's okay to drink. But I have a question. At what point does one become drunk? Remember, the Bible defines uh, to be drunk the process of becoming drunk. And so at what point does one become drunk? And how can one know how much they can drink before becoming drunk? And and, and I'm speaking from experience here. I hate to admit it, but it's it's true. Uh, I've had experience in the past where I have drunk to the point of complete intoxication. I've drunk to the point where I passed out for about 16 hours. And so uh, I know this from experience and... and, uh, There is a point where you are what people would consider drunk. But how do you know how much you can get there? You always, you know, in my mind, the only way to know our limit in something like that is to exceed the limits. Then perhaps next time, knowing your limit, you're not going to go past that. But the problem with this line of thinking is that the only way to drink without sinning is to first commit the sin of drunkenness in order to learn your limitations, and of course, uh, you know there's a lot of other things that are involved in that. But the the process by which one becomes intoxicated is condemned in Scripture, and so as soon as we take that first drink, we have begun the process. You know, Doctor Donald L. Gerard, quoted in that book by W. D. Jeff Cooch says, there is a general sequence of events which commonly occurs when a sober person begins to drink alcoholic beverages. These events are expressions of the degree to which a person has lost control over his speech, emotional expression, and motor behavior. You know, the Bible clearly condemns drinking alcohol simply for pleasure. Whether one becomes fully impaired or even slightly impaired, the Christian must abstain from this. Now, there are those that will go to 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 23. And there it says, uh, Paul tells Timothy, Drink no longer water, but use a little wine for thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. And so you say, well, the Bible commands... Uh, complete abstinence from alcohol. And one will say, well, you know, Timothy was told to drink wine. But notice the reason for which Timothy was told to drink wine. For thy stomach's sake and thine oft infirmities. There is a medicinal property to alcohol. Uh, That is beneficial. It has the side effect of making one intoxicated, but... To some degree, but it also has the effect of a medical purpose, a medical use. And so if you were to take, uh, I'm trying to say, commonly used drugs such as, um, (laughs) slipped my mind. All I'm thinking of is is Tylenol 3. Tylenol 3, it has a drug that is on uh, codeine. Thank you. It's got codeine in it. You're to take codeine, you can get a little bit goofy, but it also uh, it does have that benefit of making you know, pain go away or whatever. And so it has a limited purpose is what I'm trying to get at. He told Timothy, you know, because of your stomach's sake, because of your alt infirmities, take a little wine. A little wine is okay. And so some will say, well, if it's okay to do that, then it's okay to drink wine for any reason. You know, that you're jumping from one thing to the next. You're jumping to a conclusion. And so it is limited to a medical use, medicinal use and dose. Uh, Notice it's a little wine, not a lot, a little bit. Now, if a purely medical use and dose is the truly one's motivation, then it wouldn't be sinful to use that. You know, some of the best uh, cough medicines uh, in the past have included alcohol in them. And uh, some of those uh, have been released with a different version that doesn't have the alcohol in it. doesn't work as good as it did before. They had to take the alcohol out because people were going into to uh, pharmacies and breaking in and stealing the cough medicine to drink. Uh, and so, anyway... If it's truly for a medicinal use, if that's really our motivation, then it wouldn't be sinful. But, you know, keep these three things in mind. First of all, the Bible tells us to examine ourselves and our motives. 2 Corinthians 13 and verse 5 says, Examine yourselves, whether you be in the faith. Prove your own selves. Know that you ye not your own selves, how that Jesus Christ is in you, except you be reproved. We're to examine ourselves and our motives. Number two, remember that alcohol is addictive. You know, one can become addicted to, to painkillers of any type, one can become addicted to alcohol. According to the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependency, 17.6 million, or one in 12, Americans suffer from alcohol dependence or chronic alcohol abuse is the fact that also that some people are more predisposed to alcohol addiction than others. And so really the best not to drink anything at all, even medicinally. There are alternatives that don't include alcohol, which in some cases work just as effectively. And also I think we need to consider our influence on others who might see us purchasing alcohol. Well, we may be buying it for purely medicinal use. But someone sees that they don't understand And and maybe that uh, Hurts our influence We need to protect our influence Because we're told to let your light so shine before men That they may see your good works And glorify your Father which is in heaven Matthew 5 verse 16 And so uh, the legal and properly Prescribed use of drugs And alcohol uh, For medication uh, Is beneficial And it's not Uh, A sin to do so. But this does not in any way justify drinking for purely pleasurable or social reasons. All right, so there's that argument the don't get drunk argument, uh, the medicinal use arguments. But here is also one that is quite often gone to, that looked at, uh, is the wedding at Cana argument. So turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 2. There we're going to begin in verse 1. And the, uh, the third day there was a marriage in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus was called and his disciples to the marriage. And when they wanted wine, the mother of Jesus said unto him, They have no wine. Jesus saith unto her, Woman, what have I to do with thee? Mine hour is not yet come. His mother saith unto the servants, Whatsoever he saith unto you do it. And there were six water pots of stone, after the manner of the purifying of the Jews, containing two or three firkins apiece. Jesus said unto them, Fill the water pots with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said unto them, Draw out now and bear unto the governor of the feast, and they bear it. And when the ruler of the feast had tasted the wine that was made the water that was made wine, and knew not which it was, but the servants which drew the water knew. The governor of the feast called the bridegroom and saith unto him, Every man at the beginning doth set forth good wine. But when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. This beginning of, the, this beginning of miracles did Jesus in Cana of Galilee and manifested forth his glory, and his disciples believed on him. And so folks will say, well, Jesus provided wine for this party. And so, therefore, he approves of drinking alcohol. Now, we need, again, to remember the biblical word wine, Greek word oinos, is a general term, generic term. And so we need to consider the entire context, not just the immediate context of John chapter 2, but the broader context of the Bible itself needs to be considered. When we think about the Old Testaments, Uh, Jesus lived and died under the Old Testament law. He was faithful to that law in every way. And that law condemned, if he provided alcohol, he violated what is spoken of in Habakkuk chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Notice what it says here. Woe, right there ought to get your attention. Woe unto him that giveth his neighbor drink that putteth thy bottle to him, and maketh him drunken also, that thou mayest look on their nakedness. Thou art filled with shame for glory. Drink thou also, and let thy foreskin be uncovered. Now this is, you know, some pretty graphic terms here. But uh, he pronounced woe on those that would provide alcohol for their neighbor, to make them drunk. Now Jesus, we know, never sinned. First Peter 2, verse 22 The being of Christ who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. These verses are false if Jesus provided alcohol to the guests of the wedding feast. Jesus, though, he did not sin here, nor did he tempt others to sin. James chapter 1 and verse 13, uh, there it says, uh, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempteth he any man. And we know that the fullness of the God had dwelled in Christ fully. Christ is God. God does not tempt uh, others to people who commit sin. And so we can know assuredly that Jesus did not turn the water into alcohol. Now some will say that the immediate context kind of gives the impression that Jesus did provide alcoholic wine. You know, the governor of the feast, again, notice what he said, Every man at the beginning does set forth good wine, and when men have well drunk, then that which is worse. But thou hast kept the good wine until now. First of all, the word drunk here is not the same word uh, that we looked at earlier. This is just the idea of having consumed Uh, A beverage of some kind. And so uh, they assume that well drunk. uh, Refers to the guests being inebriated. Because they were completely drunk. That's what some say. But this does not consider the possibility that well drunk. Refers to the quantity they had consumed. Rather than the effect that it had on them. And so they have drunk it all. You know uh, I kind of think it this way. You know, if I've got a two-liter bottle of Dr. Pepper and, and we drink all of that, well, generally speaking, you're going to break out, you know, the Dr. Thunder from Walmart after people have already drunk the diet, doctor, the regular Dr. Pepper. Maybe they won't notice the difference. But here, uh, he says, you saved the good stuff for last. You know, you fed everybody Dr. Thunder, and now you brought out the Dr. Pepper, which is about as good as anything you could drink. We have an argument in my house about that, but... Uh, <laughs> Anyway, they were well drunk because they had drunk a lot of the, the grape juice. They consumed enough grape juice that their sense of taste had become dulled. The governor feast was simply noting the unusual circumstance in which the host had brought out the superior quality after the lesser quality had been consumed. And so uh, there's another argument out there, and boy, we're running out of time. Uh, the qualification of elders and deacons arguments. You know, uh, look over in 1 Timothy chapter 3. It says that, you know, verse 2, uh, uh, a bishop, an elder must be sober. Verse 3, not given to wine. And then over in, in verses 8 through 11, it says, likewise, the deacons must be grave, not double tongued, not given to much wine. And so, uh, An elder is not given to wine, a deacon is not given to much wine. And some say, well, you know, these words appear to be self-evidence. Why put the word much if it did not serve a purpose and therefore meant nothing? So they say, well, you know, an elder can't drink any wine at all, but a deacon can't drink much wine. As long as he doesn't drink much wine, he's okay. Now, uh, Brother Doug McClish has a a good write-up on this. He said, neither this nor any other context establishes a distinction between the amount of alcoholic beverages elders and deacons are allowed to drink. Not given to wine, 1 Timothy 3.3, 3. the American Standard, by the way, translates this, not a brawler, is from a Greek word paroinas, which meaning to be alongside of wine, in the sense of lingering or tarrying with it. The American standard places the secondary meaning brawler in the text because one who drinks often becomes a quarrelsome and pugilistic person. Not given to much wine in reference to deacons is a totally different expression, Uh, more so in the Greek than in the English, referring to the hold or the addiction which wine has on those who freely imbibe it. The two passages represent two different ways of issuing warnings about the dangers and evils of drinking wine. It is passing strange that some profess to see justification for drinking in two passages which warn men of the evils of the same thing. You know, uh, some will say, well, you know, the reason why here is that elders are held to a higher standard than other Christians because they have an important office. But you know when a comparison is made between the qualification of elders and the qualifications of faithful Christians and I use qualification in quotes here it becomes clear that elders are not held to a higher standard of conduct everything that is bound upon the elders in other places is bound upon other Christians where they apply and so to be sure elders have a greater responsibility and condemnation if they do not fulfill their responsibility But a higher standard uh, regarding their conduct they do not have. There is no standard applied to the elders that is not also applied to all Christians. Deacons and all other Christians are not held to a lesser standard. That would make two standards. That would make God a uh, respecter of persons. Uh, Notice also Titus 2 and verse 3. It says, the aged women likewise, that they be in behavior as becometh holiness, not false accusers, not given to much wine, teachers of good things. And so here the aged women are to possess the qualities of not being given to much wine, just like the deacons. And so it used the exact same phrase. Uh, and so, you know, the idea of not given to much wine is not applied to anyone uh, if you use this logic. Anyone other than deacons and old ladies. Deacons and old ladies are the only ones allowed to drink, according to this logic. Uh, And so, also, we need to remember, think about this, is that the condemnation of an excess of something does not automatically condone a lesser degree of the same thing. Such as uh, James chapter 1, verse 21 it says, Wherefore lay apart all filthiness and superfluity of naughtiness and receive with meekness the engrafted word which is able to save your soul. Superfluity of naughtiness, uh, otherwise translated as an excess of naughtiness. In 1 Peter chapter 4 and verse 4, it says, uh, Wherein they think it strange that you not run with them to the same excess of riots, speaking evil of you. And so does this condone a a moderate amount of naughtiness or a a tad of riot in the life of a Christian? Of course it doesn't. The excess is condemned simply as a point of emphasis. And uh, finally, there is an argument that was uh, brought to my attention. It's really, really kind of disturbed me. In fact, it kind of made me angry. And uh, basically... This argument goes like this. The Pharisees accused Jesus of being a wine-bibber. And some will say, well, they only made that accusation because they saw him drink alcohol when he ate with the sinners and the publicans. One person stated, it seems reasonable to me that they claimed he was a wine-bibber because they had seen him drink wine. You know, and that last statement there was made to me by a member of the church, a Christian. Who says that the Pharisees accused Jesus of being a wine-bibber and a glutton because they had seen him do it. Can you imagine the gall of that? To accuse our Savior of that? And I told him I would be concerned with my position if I found myself agreeing to any degree... With the Pharisees concerning their false accusations against Jesus and his disciples. You know what evidence did the Pharisees base this false accusation? Was it because they had seen him drink uh, wine? Or simply did they see him go in with the publicans and the sinners and eat meals? You know it was a false accusation. They wanted to seek a reason to kill Jesus. They wanted to accuse him of a crime that was punishable by death so they could murder him. They made up these accusations. Matthew chapter 9 verses 10 and 11 it says it came to pass as Jesus sat at meat in the house behold many publicans and sinners came and sat down with him and his friends and when the Pharisees saw it they said to his disciples why eateth your master with publicans and sinners? So he did eat with them. Luke chapter 5 verses 29 and 30 says, And Levi made a great feast in his own house, and there was a great company of publicans and of others that sat down with him. But their scribes and Pharisees murmured against his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with publicans and sinners? Now one cannot assume that Jesus drank alcohol from the fact that he ate with publicans and sinners. Furthermore, they coupled that accusation with being a wine-bibber, uh, of that with being a glutton. And also they said, you know, he was possessed by the devil. Now a glutton is one who overindulges in eating and drinking. It's strongly associated with, with things like banquetings and riots, as we read in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. It's a disposition described by Paul in Philippians 3.19 of one who's having their God as their belly. You know, gluttony was an offense for which one could be stoned to death in Deuteronomy chapter 21, verses 20 and 21. Remember, they're seeking a reason to kill Jesus. They make a false accusation against Him. You know, we see it later, you know, at His so-called trial, where they make false accusations and they pay people to lie about Jesus. These are not people that are trying to uphold the law. These are people that are trying to murder a man and find justification to do so. You know, he was falsely slandered and accused of many other things. casting out demons by the power of Satan, being possessed by a demon. Were any of these things based upon fact? Absolutely not. Can we judge our Lord and His actions based upon false accusations of those that have vowed themselves as His enemies? Absolutely not. To make this argument, to me, it's someone who tries to make that argument. They're really, really trying to justify doing what they want to do, which is drink alcohol. These show the links to which one will go to justify this. They will look for anything that seems to be a loophole in God's injunction against drinking alcohol. You know, they think, well, if medicinal use is okay, then then I can use it any way I want. They say, if Jesus did it, then we can do it. If deacons are not to have much wine, then anyone can have a little except for elders. And so they so strongly want to engage in social drinking that they will attempt to drag the very Savior who suffered and died on the cross for them through the proverbial mud and sully His flawless reputation to justify themselves before men and God. You know, I would not want to be them and stand before the Almighty God in judgment to answer for that blasphemy. Now, what we've said here about alcohol really applies to anything that is mind-altering. You know, mushrooms that you find out, certain types of hallucinogenic mushrooms, uh, drugs of any sorts. All of this stuff really applies. The recreational use of those things and abuse of those things. The consumption of any intoxicant merely for the sensation it produces is a sinful misuse of that substance. First Peter 2.11 it says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you, as strangers and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Drinking alcohol for social or pleasurable reasons is just wrong. It is a sin. It's a sin that, that leads to, you know, they talk about you know marijuana, the gateway drug. The gateway drug is alcohol. Most people, their first experience with some kind of drug is alcohol. It is the alcohol that leads to other things. Uh, It's one of those things that if you imbibe in it one time, well, okay, maybe I'll never do it again. You imbibe again, and pretty soon your conscience becomes seer. And maybe you become physically and emotionally, chemically dependent upon that substance something that will dominate and destroy your life. The best thing to do is stay away from it completely. That's why uh, there are passages in Proverbs, for instance, that say, Look not on the wine. Uh, Do not linger on the wine. Do not look on it. Because it's like a serpent that will bite and kill you. Alcohol is... A dangerous substance. Stay away from it. Our Lord came and He lived a a perfect life. A life in which He did no sin. He did not drink alcohol. He did not provide alcohol. He did not in any way condone the drinking of alcoholic beverages. He lived a perfect life so that He could die a perfect sacrifice. A perfect sacrifice for your sins and mine. The Bible makes it clear that all is sin and comes short of the glory of God. And the only way to have uh, our sins washed away is by the blood of Jesus Christ. Today, if you're here and you have not obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ by believing and confessing your belief, repenting of your sins, being baptized to wash away your sins, we urge you to do so now. We urge you today, if you're here as a Christian who has not been faithful to God, we urge you to come back to Him. Today, if we can help you to respond to the invitation, please come forward to the front row as together we stand and sing.